Joining me is the wonderful guest co-host, Antonia. Hi, <laughs> Antonia is a wonderful friend of mine who I love talking about books with. And we were in book clubs together before. Actually, one in particular was the Vaginal Fantasy Book Club, started by Felicia Day and her friends. Which was That's awesome. How we it was, and it's still going on. We just don't have enough time to actually read it, yeah. unfortunately, the book. So... But because of that, we became ambassadors of smut. It's very true, though. <laughs> it, is, it is. It's a title I, I find very near and dear to me. I include it on all my resumes. <laughs> Maybe that's why nobody knew was hiring me. <laughs> right? Oh, gee, that was it. Damn it. <laughs> well, it is a very cold and rainy night, and we are enjoying some wonderful warm alcoholic drinks because alcohol is not just for the warm. Cold weather, warm weather, it's for the cold weather too. What are you drinking tonight, Antonia? Tonight I am drinking hot apple cider with apple pie moonshine in it. I love that mug, it's so very you. It's vintage, isn't it? Thank you. It's been in the family for a solid while. <laughs> <laughs> so, to educate some of you guys on um, the vintage awesomeness of Antonia. She also does World War II reenactments. I do, because I'm a nerd like that. <laughs> and that's why we love you. <laughs> so, for these World War II reenactments, what is your specific role? I don't think I've ever asked you that. Um, I do a field nurse impression, um, which both has the benefit of letting us kind of inflict history knowledge upon people in an area that a lot of people don't kind of realize existed. Um, and also it means for the sake of reenacting since the field nurses were basically the closest to the front line who were ladies. It's kind of the thing we can do to go out and hang out with the guys. <laughs> they very cool. each other and play in mud. <laughs> I love it. When I've gone to her to find, um, women in history for stuff that I've been writing, she's like, oh great, there's this nurse, and then there's this nurse, and this nurse is really great too. <laughs> so, I think one day she could probably write a book on World War II nurses and how they were awesome and probably tough as uh, nails, tougher than some of the soldiers. <laughs> very, very true, honestly. Mm -hmm. Well, tonight I, I also have a mug too, because it's pouring where I am. And I'm enjoying a nice cup of hot chocolate with amaretto, which surprisingly really well together. Oh, I'd believe it. Mm -hmm. I I've like been doing Kahlua. Kahlua and hot chocolate has been my drink of choice as of late, but I can't find my homemade Kahlua. And store-bought Kahlua, after you've done homemade Kahlua, just isn't the same. Understandable. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So. <laughs> oh. Moving on, um, the Tsarina's Legacy is our current book that we are reading. And this, for those of you who are watching, this is it. By the way, um, you can catch us not only here on YouTube, but at podcasts.com, at googleplay.com. And by the end of the night, or possibly by the end of the weekend, it will be at um, soundcloud.com. I'm going to get us set up over there. So even if you have an iPhone, you can actually use us because I, for some reason, have been having the worst time getting an iTunes account set up. 
So, with that being said, and all those wonderful shout-outs being said, Zarina's Legacy, what are your thoughts on it so far, Antonia? I am generally really liking it so far. Oh, good. I'm loving that everybody who's come on is actually really enjoying it. I've been so afraid that everybody coming out would be like, oh, no, I hated it. Yeah. No, the, the main thing that gives me pause on it is that the back and forth type books where it's like one chapter and one time period and one chapter with another time period always that it makes me have to have to like hold myself back from just like reading all the odd number chapters first. <laughs> like, I get invested in one of the stories during that chapter and then I'm like, I don't want to have to wait on the cliffhanger. But I know. I know. I, I, I feel that way sometimes with this book going back and forth where I'm like, oh, I don't want to read more about Grisha right now. I want to know more about what's going on between Veronica and Michael. Yes. <laughs> I, I, right before this, I was finishing my reading and their chapter left on a major cliffhanger. So now I'm like, oh, I have to actually talk about the book and I can't just read it and finish it. Oh, I know the torture of it all. <laughs> um, so I'm glad you're liking it. Um, <laughs> And our topic today is from modern feminism, modern feminist uh, literature, and I think this book definitely falls within that category of a modern feminist piece of literature, because we all know these standard go-tos for feminist literature, and you're Sylvia Plath, uh, The Handmaiden's Tale, was it The Bell Jar? It's been so long since I've read like the true feminist handbooks on feminism that it's nice to point out some of the ones that you can find in modern literature. And, I, and this is one of those ones because you have this heroine who is, she's intellectual. She's not your stereotypical, in-your-face kind of girl. She's not one or the other. Um, and you've got this com a complicated relationship where she's just not going to fall for the guy right away. And likewise, even looking at the historical side of it, because... I think the last two weeks we focused so much on Veronica and Michael's relationship in the modern story, which everybody loves the modern story. The modern side of this book is such a great side of the story um, that I, I feel like we need to give some more attention to the historical side of it where Catherine the Great was a feminist in a time period where there was no such thing. Yes, absolutely. And, F you to the patriarchy. Yes, exactly. And not just F you to the patriarchy, it was, I'm going to get me mine, and y'all going to wait your turn, and y'all going to listen to what I say. I think I aspire to be her. <laughs> we all do. Yes. I think we all do. I think we all do here at Wine, Women, and Words. Catherine the Great is now our, our <laughs> person we strive to be. But she spread, she was known as spreading enlightenment through Russia. And it's interesting reading the, um, watching the Netflix uh, series uh, of, about the czars. And, it, and I've talked about this before. And it's like the, um, oh, something about the, the czars of Russia, Russia's czars, or something like that. But it was interesting that they were showing political cartoons about Catherine during that time in the 1800s. And there was one that was just so great that they showed where it was a very giant Catherine walking over the heads of these of these kings. And if you're taking the opportunity to look up her skirts 
and she was just walking all over them, and she was a threat to them. Oh, what are your, what are your takes on uh, this and Catherine being so strong? Uh, well, obviously she's amazing. Um, I appreciated in the modern side of things too, though, that um, recently Veronica mentioned essentially how like we always hoped that if we had lived in those times that we would be enlightened and forward thinking. Um, also like pointing out that Catherine had been very forward thinking for her time. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I just, I liked that, that yeah, we'd all like to think we would carry our modern ideals with us. Um, yeah, <laughs> such a baller. Like, <laughs> like what do you really say there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, she did, and she she had the a drive that you know I'm sure throughout history. I mean, there have been women who've had that drive. I mean, look at you know the um, Egyptian female Egyptian pharaohs, uh, Queen Elizabeth the first. But I think there's there's been more women over history who have had that drive, who have wanted that power, but they don't actually go out and get it because of the forces around them, or they think that they can't because of their situation. So yes. they just act as a puppet through the guy who, who leads them. Well, and it's and also worth noting that a lot of those historically strong women, like history tried so hard on so many of them to just get rid of all the record. So true. So true. And, and get rid of, not only get rid of all the record, but to rewrite them. I mean, mm -hmm. in Catherine's story, up until really this book and that um, the Netflix documentary, I didn't know much about her. But she had that reputation that where she had a uh, really strong sexual appetite to the point where people brought her a horse, which is not true, by the way. Right? Yeah. No, that's completely people just trying to discredit her, which is ridiculous. But. <laughs> <laughs> And it's and it's something that I've always wondered about. Why the larger question? Why have strong women been something to fear? I don't know. What are your thoughts? What are your What's your answer? Can you solve the world? <laughs> well, I'm sure that partly it's that they don't want anyone else getting ideas. Um, sure. If nobody else has done it according to everything you know, then you're not going to try. Um, <laughs> But, and yeah, and I think some of it is just, I don't know, it's a very real way to try and eliminate something that you don't want to exist, you know? Mm -hmm. It's it's rewriting history as you want, which is... Good point. Not right, but that's part of the fun and stress of studying history, is digging through everything <laughs> and trying to come to some semblance of what might have been true. Yes, because you're a history major, weren't you? Yes. Many, an a lot of focus on how to look at historical record and basically to not trust anything that's written. <laughs> you can trust a grocery list, basically. Yeah, which is so true about almost everything in life and literature is can't, not necessarily literature, but life and news and media, but you can't trust everything that's given to you, especially with all this fake news controversy that's come out with Facebook. Lord. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know, it's almost like you need a degree just to be able to pinpoint what the correct news is. 
trust no one, especially not sensationalist things. <laughs> exactly. The more sensational it is, the more you need to go on snopesforpolitico.com to review it. I will say it's nice in this day and age. I feel like if you choose to make the effort on a lot of current issues, you can find a little more truth very quickly if you do a <laughs> search. <laughs> yes, yeah, so you can you can educate yourself. Um, so, I mean, and that begs the question if, you know, with the recent political things that have occurred, um, can we end up with another calf in the grid, at least for America, you think? Can along with that strong of a personality come through and lead like that? I, I assume it's about near future. I'm hoping within my lifetime. Yeah. Really. Yeah. I mean, I'm, a little, I'm feeling a little downtrodden. I was like, yes, it's going to happen before, you know, before I turn 40, we're going to have somebody. Now I'm like, you know, as long as I'm not one of those 90-year-olds who gets to actually go and vote for another woman, I'd like it to be sooner rather than later. If you had asked me like a month and a half ago, I would say, yes, absolutely, in our lifetimes, we could see a woman come to power in our country who doesn't have to worry about putting on the trappings of what people would like to see and can just be powerful in her own right. Now, having seen so much more of just the ugliness that some people kept, kept very hidden up until now, I... I don't know how soon it'll be. And that makes me very sad. Yeah, because I mean, when you go and you look at, I went back and I looked at how Catherine came into power, which came in through the Netflix documentary. She actually stole the crown. Really, when it comes down to it, she wouldn't have gotten the crown any other way because she wasn't, she was only a Romanoff by marriage. She wasn't Romanoff within the bloodline. And according to the documentary, I mean, she, she was made to marry this little putz of a man who was an embarrassment and I can't recall if her son is actually is truly Romanoff if he was that guy's son biologically or if he was from somebody else because he nobody could get him to actually sleep with his wife who was a gorgeous woman and at that time she was a young beautiful woman and he had some dalliances with some less than savory women and when it came time for coronation she just she hops into the carriage, her hair is being done as they're going down into the church for the coronation so she can literally steal the crown from her husband. I, mean, I love it. It took for her to get power, and I think that's wonderful. And I almost feel like that's the only way that we're going to get a woman president is if somebody just comes in and takes it. Which I feel like I'm a little more open to than I should be at this moment in time. I kind of am too, yeah. <laughs> Depending on what the who the woman is, yeah, it has to be somebody in the great ask, really. Yeah, <laughs> but that I think that leads us into modern feminism and what we define modern feminism to be, because there's this this standard rule that or idea, perpetual idea that feminism is women above men, that women are better than men. Um, I actually had a guy tell me once. You're not a feminist. You're not angry like that. It's like, really? 
Just ask my husband. <laughs> what makes me angry is people thinking that's what feminism is. Yes, yes, exactly. And yeah, so I think we should spend a little bit of time talking about what feminism is. Absolutely. And this may have been the case back in the sixties, but given the fact that and given the fact that women were so much further behind where the men were, that it felt like they were taking from the men that they were angrier and they wanted to be better than the well, and it's it's that old. I can't remember the exact phrasing, but when you've when you've been used to being above people, then equality feels like oppression to you. Mm-hmm. Um, which is yeah, just we want an equal seat at the table, and you know it's nowhere near obviously as bad as it used to be. Like nobody's slapping us on the butt and calling us toots or anything, but you know <laughs> we've still got further that we need to go. Which again, I feel like this election has made very clear. <laughs> <laughs> We've got so much further to go. But I think modern feminism in and of itself is, you know, looking at equality, true equality. I think the best example for this, um, for wanting equality, is the draft, looking at the draft. I'm not a supporter of the draft. Currently, as the draft stands, if we were to have a draft like we did before, it would be men going into the draft. Just men, no women. Which isn't fair so dumb yeah no i i don't want a draft at all like i think we should get rid of that but if we're going to keep it then we should all have to sign mm-hmm. up like exactly and, and i don't want to sign up i don't want to be drafted into the military my husband was in the military i saw the shit that he went through yeah oh i want to be downrange I don't have the guts that those soldiers have when they're downrange. Yeah. I really don't. I'm a bus. And yeah, I, again, I feel like no draft for anyone, but if we're going to keep mm-hmm. it, everyone should have to sign up. Okay. And while I think that combat roles should be opened up to women who are capable for them, at the very least, if you have women, you can shove us in the desk jobs, you know? Free a man to fight against all that jazz. Those of us who are with us, and I don't want to say shove us in the desk jobs because I know. My husband, um, he worked with a few women on his team that were tougher than him, that could kick yeah. any guy's ass. That's what I mean, yeah. But, For, I, again, I think that combat should be opened up to women who are capable. Um, like, if I'm looking mm-hmm. at my list of who I trust to have my back in a fist fight, it's actually mainly women. <laughs> <laughs> right? Ronda Rousey being at the top of the list. <laughs> But like, even then another great example is uh, American Ninja Warrior. Yeah. I love the show during the summertime because it, it's a great example of modern feminism because you're looking at, you've got this one obstacle course. Yeah. Everybody's got one and it is rolling. Down course for ladies or anything. Exactly. Exactly. No down course, they don't have to have a shorter time. They have to have as fast of a time as a guy. And there have been, I can't remember if, I don't know who the current winner is. I don't know if it was that one really awesome stunt girl or not. I can't remember either. I don't watch it regularly, but I tend to watch it if I'm flipping channels mm-hmm. and it's on. Yeah, I was watching it regularly and then um, we went on vacation and like when I came back, it was like on a break and I just never got back to it. Yeah. And... For me, it was my, like, dinner after workout show because it was on then. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there was this one woman that was on there who was a stunt stunt woman. And she was a stunt woman. She had been on Supergirl. She's been on a number of other shows. 
and she flew through them. And now I'm going to have to go back and look and see if she actually won. But she did it just as well as the men and better than some of the men. Yeah. And I think if you give women the opportunity to be equal with men, then they will. They can. They can rise up to that. You, you can't yeah. say just because you got a pair of boobs and no penis that you can't do these things. Yeah. Um, well, my thing is I'm willing to acknowledge that there might not be as many of us physically capable of doing everything as a guy could, but we yeah. should not let the women who can do it be held back. Absolutely. Like, Absolutely. I'm that I could do any of that. Like, I am a delicate, delicate little flower, mainly because I'm too lazy to yeah. do push-ups. But <laughs> I will root for you. I will root for you from the sidelines. I will be the best damn she I will, I will just be in the water immediately. <laughs> as much as I want to, like, huh, I, that. I want to do that. <laughs> I know I don't have the proper coordination. Even if I had the athletic ability, I would not have the coordination. I trip with my own damn feet. So. <laughs> Great, yeah. So, like, I'm willing to acknowledge that, yeah, I'm not saying that, like, all of us could definitely do it or anything, but some of us can't. Let them do it. Some of us can't. And then looking at the flip side of things, um, looking at the male side, part of feminism is acknowledging that men can do things around the house. Yes. Men are capable of doing their own laundry. Yeah, I feel like, well, like, mm -hmm. not, not just take on more of an equal role with that kind of things, but that are, are you're allowed to have emotions besides anger. Yeah. yeah. That's not... Healthy. What was it that was race? Oh, was it? Oh, it, there was, I was reading a great article. It was the difference between Harry Potter and, um, oh, who was our hero in Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them? Uh, Newt. Newt. I can never say the last name. Newt Commander. I'm a bad fan. Newt Commander. <laughs> yeah. He's a Hufflepuff. Huh? And he's a Hufflepuff. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it was interesting, this article, because it was looking at the idea of toxic toxic masculinity versus, uh, and I think I shared this on my blog's page, uh, Creating Her Story, um, on its Facebook page, where you have the toxic masculinity that you found with Harry, and Harry's story going up as a teenager, and then you have, and even going into some of the Chris Child, you had that bit of that, where I've got to fix everything, I've got to be you know, I'm the guy, and this is these are the roles you're supposed to have. And then you've got Newt, who doesn't have that aggression that Harry would have. And call it whether or not the fact that he's a Hufflepuff, or whether it's the fact that... Badger pride! <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, even, look at... Um, you know, it's not just, you know, the houses, because i got to defend the Slytherin. Oh, yeah. I mean... Snape. Snape wasn't the kind of guy who would get really angry and up in your face. He wasn't a, I wouldn't consider him to be a toxic masculine person. I feel like some of his issues stem from toxic masculinity, though. Like, I feel like his... Well, he's not a toxic masculine guy, because he was a bully to Harry, his, he was bullied by Harry's dad, who was a toxic uh, dude. But, well, that's what I mean. I feel like he, I feel like his issues were that he didn't live up to the standards set 
within toxic masculinity, but I don't feel like he ever rejected them. It rejected it either. Okay. I see what you're saying. And I can agree with that. And that like, I, I don't know. I feel like his kind of like obsession with Lily kind of stemmed from that in that like, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know. I felt like her and young James that Snape and like younger James didn't you know, I feel like, I don't feel like either of them saw her as like a real person. It was more as a prize to be claimed. I think, I think Snape saw her as a real person though. I don't think it was necessarily as a prize to be claimed because she was the first friend, first and only friend that he ever had. I guess a real person might be the wrong thing, but more as who they wanted her to be as opposed to who he, who she was. Like, I feel like if okay. he loved Lily, who Lily is, then he would not have been able to support any sort of pure blood supremacy, you know? True. I could see that. And but maybe it even might consider the fact that he was supporting the pure blood supremacy issue because of the fact that he was heartbroken by the. I feel like that's that's where I think that he didn't ever opt out of toxic masculinity, and that uh, failing in the achievement of getting the girl, then he lashes out. Which you see happen over and over again. Um, I was actually watching, binge watching Fuller House, and they had a little episode of that because I watch cheesy things on television. <laughs> I can't do that at all. I'm very encouraged. I feel like there have been a lot of movies lately with masculine heroes who pretty much do reject toxic masculinity. Um, yeah. And like, um, in Fury Road, for instance, um, you know, you see Max stepping aside to let Furiosa take the shot, you know, things like that, without any fuss over, you know, being shown up or anything. Um, you have Poe in Star Wars, who's just, mm -hmm. like, totally chill the whole way through. <laughs> Oh, I am so. That's my new Star Wars crush. I used to be a Han Solo girl. Now, oh like, gosh, I'm a Not just because oh, I'm yeah. gorgeous. But yeah, just, you know, he's someone who's like immediately encouraging to like his new stormtrooper friend. Yeah. Like, and that's one of the things I like. Yeah, there's no like trying to show each other up or anything. Um, same with like Finn and Ray. Like everyone just kind of immediately embraces everyone as a valuable member of a team. This is one of the best fandoms out there. <laughs> um, <but laughs> I like what I like about the relationship between um, Finn and Ray, bringing up the whole idea of toxic masculinity, is that he. When he feels the need to protect her and take on that role of, I'm going to protect you, I'm going to take you by the hand, I'm going to lead you away from this danger. And oh, she's holding my hand. I appreciate her saying that, but I also, I don't know, I didn't get a ton of lead her away from danger with that. It always felt to me more like we don't want to get separated from him. So oh, I don't yeah. know. I generally appreciate how that scene played out because, again, I feel like even when he did it, it wasn't coming from a super patriarchal place. But then, yeah, and I appreciated her shutting it down anyway. And then, you know, when she helps him up and they continue on together. 
Well, I think a lot of it was the fact that he almost felt like this was the role that he was supposed to take. But yet he didn't really feel that that was a role because he had respect for Ray. And when she pulled away and said, oh, no, you need to get back into your own lane, he got back into his own lane. Right, with and, no thinking about it. Just, okay. And bringing it back to our current book, The Zarina's Legacy, when Veronica feels that Michael gets too pushy, she's like, uh-uh, back in your own lane. And he relatively gets back into his own lane, grumbling and complaining the whole way, but he still does it. Right, yeah. And I feel like that's a huge part of kind of where I am with feminism right now and kind of where I hope we can get sooner rather than later is to like, yeah. please listen to me on choices like that. Yeah, Don't I really, really get angry when you have fathers, where you, where you have this idea in some of the television shows where fathers don't know what the hell they're doing when it comes to taking care of their kids. I don't have kids yet, but when it comes to like Michelle and her family with her husband, Rich, you know, I've watched him around his kids. He can pick up his kid, he can change his kid's diaper, he can get his kid a drink without an issue. One of my other good friends, Amanda, uh, watching her dad, her husband be a dad to her son, they're capable of being nurturing. And by perpetuating this toxic male idea that men have to be this way, they have to be big and they have to be grown, you can't show your emotions and you can't be the nurturing one where the woman has to take care of everything. I think it's damaging to fathers. It's damaging to the way men can be parents, and it takes them away from the parenting world that they can't have. Yes. Like, just, I don't know. I don't feel like it's bad if the whole, if everyone in the world is willing to be just a little bit softer to each other, you know? And recognizing the fact that you know, one of us is better at some things than others. Like one person in the relationship may be more of a nurturer while the other one is more of a player. Like with the dogs, with Ryan and I, not that they're children or anything, but as an example, say, even though they're children to us, um, we always joke around, mommy's for cuddles and daddy's for playtime because they always want to come to me when it comes to cuddle time. Right, that's, well, that's how it works for you guys. Yeah, and that's how it works for us. It may be something different for other people, and that's okay. Yeah. It's just the way it is. And when you look at even, like, the same-sex relationships, you have, in some cases, you have parents where one is more nurturing than the other. They they take on those roles. And of just... But, yeah, it very much does come down to individuals as opposed to gender, which I don't understand why that's a hard concept for so much of the world. Yeah, and looking, it's only Western civilization where we have this idea that gender is two, there's only two genders. It's only in Western civilization that we have this. Civilizations in uh, South America, Native American civilizations, you have up to like, what, three or four genders? Five in a few cases? Well, and also with stuff like that, I, I also don't get why people want to make it into a huge political thing. Just in the sense of not hurting you. And, like, I feel like a lot of it coming from the religious right, like, you know what, even if you think someone's going to help for it, that's no reason to tell them they are not allowed to be who they are. Like, here and now. <laughs> it's like, well, with Ryan, um, after he came back from being overseas, his number one thing was having experienced the war, his 
or war in general, I should say, his his take on it is, who am I to tell somebody else how to be happy? Yeah. It comes down to. And interestingly, I learned something that when I went to Fiji, one of the cautionary things that they have for Fiji before we went, and I thought this was really interesting, is that if you have a family with, like, no girls, they some families will actually pick one of the children to take on the female roles and be the female in the family and do like the female stereotypical things that a girl would do for the household and they treat them just like a girl to the point where they're like gender wise like it's as if they have a daughter and in some cases they go on to become um the, to be gay and to have those types of relationships down the line, and in some cases they just grow up and be have normal heterosexual relationships. And it was one of the cautionary things because they were they were like, be careful of these people because those are the, because from that some of those people from that situation will go out and become prostitutes. Ah, so that's where I learned about it because I was like, okay, what do I need to warn myself about? Like, I'm looking just for like diseases, or am I gonna get what scams? I am I gonna get robbed by? I mean, I'm not out looking for that sort of thing. So it was like, um, okay. I never knew that. Yeah, and it's it, it's one of those interesting things that you know how we take uh, gender, how we treat gender, and how we teach gender. Just let people be who they are. Yes. Well, I love it. It was so hilarious. Um, I was at the zoo with my friend and her son, and we're going through the gift shop. And he was like, she was like, oh, we have to go look at the girl toys. He likes girls toys, and he's four years old. I was like, oh, okay. Well, uh, this is interesting. I like to see how this happens, because I don't know how I would take it when I become a mom. You know, you just kind of, you know, let the dude, kid do what they want to be happy. And so she was like, but wait, watch this. She asked her son, so... Why do you like girls' toys? And he looks up at us and goes, because I like girls. And then goes and, like, starts pointing out all these different girl toys. And she's like, we found out. The reason why he likes girls' toys is because when he gets the girls' toys, he gets to go play with the girls at preschool. Oh, he's not playing with little boys. He's <laughs> going to play with little girls. And it's adorable. It is. It is. So, I mean, we can't be too stifling because, I mean, Really? Come on now. <laughs> well, also with so many toys, it's so pointless to gender them. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, that's ridiculous. That's a thing. Things like Legos, for instance, like they're yeah, building. Yeah. Anyone use the damn things? Yeah, I think the a, a pink pink Legos are okay. But I want to be able to still make my own airplane out of pink Legos. There's nothing wrong with having a pink airplane. I having admit, a pink fighter plane. I rebelled so hard against pink as a kid because I could tell that it was being shoved down my throat. And I was just like, I'm not having it. So I did. I went through that phase where I kind of rejected a lot of femininity because it was expected and I wasn't having that. So, yeah, it wasn't until like late high school college that I finally was like willing to be like okay it's not bad like I'm allowed to be feminine on my own terms 
without exactly doing what's expected necessarily in all aspects of life. Yeah, you know, growing up, I hated it too. It was that was another thing where I was expected where if I'm okay, if I'm gonna be the kind of person who doesn't want to be tied down to specific gender stereotypes, I'm not gonna like this color. And for the longest time, when we weren't anything pink, didn't want anything to do with pink. Blue was my favorite color growing up. Uh, purple and blue were my favorite colors growing up. And it, my bedroom was done in blue with sunflowers. And um, it was just, that was the way it was. And yeah, for me, same thing. When I was, it was until I was in college where I was like, I'm gonna, my feminism is going to be based on my own definitions and not what society feels that it yeah. should be. So well, like, definitely went through that phase of thinking I was better than other girls because I wasn't being girly, so there. Which, you know, now I want to go back and smack young Antonia in the face because that's ridiculous. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I think it's ridiculous that we accidentally teach young girls that kind of behavior. Um, Interesting, I was listening to uh, Madonna's speech when she accepted her Woman of the Year award. And she was talking about how feminists actually told her she set women back because of the way she chose to be so sexual. And I think a lot of what feminism is, you know, going back to what we've kind of gone on to is it's not just about equality. It's about what the individual wants and what the individual chooses to do. Go shake your tatas around a pole. That's your choice. So long as you're not being demeaned by your boss and taken advantage of yes. financially. Yeah, that's uh, that's my my main well, pretty much my only issue with anything like that is that I do think that people need to look at why they're doing something, mm -hmm. um, and make sure that they're coming at it from kind of a good direction. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah. Just, I'm, I'm not putting it to words well right now, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, I think with, like, uh, in the case of Madonna, so much of it was statements. So much of it was saying you can own your own sexuality. You can be Catherine, yeah. like Catherine the Great was, and have sex with as many men or women or both as you want. You could have these, these desires and these urges that are typically yeah. set only for men. Essentially, I guess I'm thinking of more in today's climate, so to speak, as, you know, women are entering into celebrity, you know, just, I hope that everyone has the chance to look at themselves and kind of decide for themselves if they want to do that and that they aren't being pressured by, you know, men in suits somewhere to please be sexier to sell some more albums. Um, just, yeah, I guess I'm a little cynical and I don't always trust that things like that are coming from a woman's, you know, her own decision in her own vacuum. And that's very true, because, I mean, that's not always coming from the case. I mean, just look at the whole Kesha thing. I mean, I'm not a fan of Kesha's music, but if you look at how she was... i liking a lot of it more than I should. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. I've got my dirty pleasures, too. Um, but with, with some of her stuff, I mean, if it comes on the radio, sometimes I'll be like, okay, you know, it's about to belong to this, all right. But, but the situation that she was in was wrong. Yeah. Or she's in contact with this guy and the way he treated her and the way he acted, that was wrong. 
And so, yeah, you have, we can question this, the, the stuff, and sometimes it needs to be questioned. Yeah. But when someone says, but by questioning it, we have to make sure that we don't also point fingers at it at the same time. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. But, yeah, like, okay, let's question Madonna back in the 80s when she was doing her, well, and my thing is, really if someone up. says, like, no, I, I'm choosing this for myself, then I'm probably going to believe them. Um, exactly. exactly. But yeah, with some up-and-comers, you know, I, I don't know, it's probably a little maternalistic of me and not necessarily flattering to me. But, you know, you, you wonder once in a while, like, are, are you making this choice? Teenage girls. Your old child. <laughs> Yeah, those those girl childs who are out there doing their um, shaking their ass, and they're barely sixteen, and they're singing these provocative songs like uh, "Go Dating Myself." Christina Aguilera, when she's like sixteen years old, singing "Genie in the Bottle." Come on and rub me right the right way. Yeah, that's a sixteen. I mean. A 16-year-old should not be singing. Currently grown up, Christine Aguilera, if she wants to sing that, fine. <laughs> yeah, you have to question where 16-year-old Christine Aguilera is on that. I'm just being older and looking back and realizing how grown up I thought I was at, like, 16, as opposed to mm-hmm. how much of an idiot I really was. <laughs> Like, I would want certain life choices that someone would, like, grab me by the collar and be like, you are not doing that, young lady. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I didn't get my opportunity to really make, when you're at that age, when you're still under your parents' thumb, they can kind of help you with those life choices. But in certain stages, you are also, um, I think I was pushed a little bit to not be allowed to make those those stupid choices. I definitely, I was never given the chance to make any poor choices. Well, not to mention I was the little nerd of a child. So I think that took (laughs) a lot of issues right there. (laughs) Oh, I had a very, my mom was pretty controlling and very strict with me um, when I was 16. And I was raised in such a strict Christian environment that it was, that some people would consider it to be abusive. Um, So... When I was given the opportunity, when I was when I finally actually got away from it, I made all those stupid choices that I should have been making when I was sixteen. When I had somebody to watch out for me, I was making them when I was seventeen or eighteen and saying "f the system, f my parents, and f everybody else in between." And um, yeah, when I was between seventeen and I would say about. 19 or so when I after I moved out here almost 20 when I met Ryan that three-year period um, I started off making really really bad decisions wound up out here um, because of those de- because some of my family could some people in my family could see the way those decisions were leading they were like oh we need to get her away from that and then I ended up out here in California and I was still rebelling and coming out of a lot of that stuff, but yeah, I became, I kind of started coming down by the time I was 20. And I was lucky that I didn't make some of those stupid decisions that could have really changed things for me when I was younger. I'm definitely a big believer in, yeah, like letting kids make the little dumb life choices. Like, I don't think you can stop people from making every mistake. 
and just mm-hmm. yeah, some things people have gotta try on their own. It's a, but yeah, if yeah. You, can, you can keep the kid from making the real bad ones, then I feel like you've succeeded. Yeah, yeah. Like you know that tattoo of your boyfriend while you're 16. Yeah, like maybe don't um, do that. Yeah, you know, hold off on that. At least till you're 18 and out of the house, then you can make whatever tattoo, whatever tattoos you want. Yeah. And hopefully, um, you know, think about it for a while, and hopefully after that thought, you'll come to the conclusion yourself. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I think that's one of the reasons why I have such problems with um, the young adult fiction, is because you have these 16-year-olds who are making these decisions, mm-hmm. who, are, who are making these mistakes, but they're perpetuated as good life choices. Yes. Which, uh, yeah. That's a really hard <laughs> Huh? I wasn't gonna say Twilight, but I was thinking it. <laughs> you know, we're all thinking it when it comes to bad examples of bad um, easy one to go opposite of feminism. Yeah, and that's my go-to one where you think about it, you know, you get these bad decisions with this abusive boyfriend, but it's seen as it's put into this light of good, of positive things. Or even the um fifty shades of gray. Well, and it's Twilight fanfic. Huh? It's Twilight fanfic. <laughs> it's the same thing. That's exactly what yeah. it is. It's true. It's, yeah, just that, and that, I, well, I feel like a lot of times in young adult, that kind of controlling boyfriend is viewed as, like, romantic. But it's not. Yeah, the alpha toxic male. Yeah. Like, no. If you want to be with this boyfriend, that this is the one that you want to be with, and you're going to spend your life, the rest of your life with him. Because you're 16, you have found him when you were 16, and every decision that you make right now is the one that you need to have for your life. Because you're definitely a little hormonal fuck up. <laughs> uh, but speaking of kind of young adult stuff, I am loving in this book that they're older. Yes. Like, yeah. Yeah. She's not even like a twenty-something college student who's studying Russian literature and finds out, you know. <laughs> she's, she's a grown woman. Like <laughs> place again, though, before the end of the podcast. <laughs> I think that's my favorite now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, like. She's grown. She has a degree that, like, didn't work out because life isn't perfect, you know? And she, yeah, she's grown. She has a life. And, I mean, right now I kind of feel like with my own writing, my some of my characters are younger. They're, like, the youngest that I'll go is, like, 18, I think, for, for a character who actually has to make life decisions. My World War II book that I've been working on has been um i have a character who's like 13 years old or so but he doesn't make any life decisions other than which comic books he wants to read right they're the, yeah like young characters are fine they just maybe shouldn't make huge life choices exactly yes but speaking of since we've, we got on the subject of uh femi- some feminist literature that we don't like let's talk about some of the ones that we do like Okay. Ones that we consider feminist literature. So give me um, two from your list. 
Okay. I have a weird list that I, I cheated on and that I included a nonfiction. <laughs> That's okay. That is okay. Um, okay. So I have on my list that I put together. So I was tempted kind of to put Ella Enchanted because that's kind of one of the more feministy books Very first. But even before that was Catherine Called Birdie by Karen Cushman. Um, okay, I've never heard of this. Yes, it's from 1994, apparently. I looked that up. Um, okay. But yeah, it, it's been a long time since I read it. Um, but it's about a girl in, I want to say, mid, yeah, 13th century England. And it's written mm -hmm. for diary entries, if I remember correctly. Um, but she's, yeah, she's a young girl and her father is trying to marry her off to all sorts of horrible people. And she's doing what she can to, you know, drive them away, whether it's like blackening her teeth or, you know, various <laughs> things to get them gone. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and she was just, she was, looking back, it was, I don't know, it was somewhat formative reading for me, I guess, um, and that, yeah, you just, I feel like now there's a lot more feminist stories being written for children, but um, mm -hmm. yeah, that was just really kind of the first one that I ran into, um, just, yeah, a young girl who's not willing to let someone else dictate her life, even if the rules have her confined to a certain rule. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, next one. Talk about two. Okay. Um, all right. So I'll just, I'll get my nonfiction out of the way. So since I am a World War II reenactor, oh. um, And If I Perish um, by Evelyn Monaghan and Rosemary Needle Greenlee. Um, what is it called? And If I Perish. Um, okay. Yes. So it's looking at women in the Army Nurse Corps, um, kind of close to the front lines um, throughout World War II. Wow. Um, they did there's a lot nothing to do with you. Um, but yeah, they did. A, they did a lot of. <laughs> you just completely ignoring my sarcasm. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> they, they and this is Diana. Just a joke. <laughs> they did a lot of interviews and everything with ladies, you know, before the whole generation passes, unfortunately. Um, but between that and a lot of diary entries and stuff, um, putting together kind of their view of the war as it goes through it. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, generally a lot more focused on European theater for people who care about that kind of thing. <laughs> Very cool. So my next two books... Um, I actually have a couple of one of well a couple series in here three series really. Um, the first of which is uh, the Parasol Protectorate series. And I was just making a note here one second. Um, the Parasol Protectorate series is always near and dear to my heart because I absolutely love the main character. Um, her name's Alexia Terabody, not only because she's Italian and big boob just like, half Italian and big boob just like me. Um, I can totally relate to the way she looks. She is, she's a fun character, she's a strong character, and she, she stands up 
with against the big bad vampires and the strong alpha male werewolves, which one she does end up being with um, in the long run, but she's able to offset that alpha maleness with her own alpha femaleness. And so I, I really dig that. And uh, going in along in the series, I can't give too much away because it spoils like some of the earlier books. But she actually stands up for herself in a number of different ways. And in a time where the story itself would be like, well, now, you know, your husband said this, and the woman just goes off and cries and then it's alone, the main character is like, well, then screw you. I'm going to go on vacation to another country. When, in the event that I come back, you better come to your senses. And if not, you know, I'm just going to do this all on my own. So screw you. So I really like that about um, about these stories because she's strong enough to be this woman that you don't typically see in Victorian literature and even in steampunk literature, which it's starting to change. And our friend Eddie, who was on, D'Antonio knows Eddie for those of you who aren't in the know. Um, Eddie was our first uh, guest. And I think Eddie, it, Eddie would argue with me on this one. And I'm, I'm almost afraid to say it, but there when I first started reading steampunk literature, a lot of it seemed very male orientated and a little on the sexist side. And with the Parasol Protectorate and the stuff that, you know, Eddie perpetuates and Eddie shares. Um, Eddie is very much a feminist, more so than me and Antonia. I, it's starting to become less sexist. And you were going to say something, Antonia? Um, yeah, well, I feel like not just steampunk, but like kind of the more romance genre has yeah. been generally kind of falling out of that, I don't know, trapped's the wrong word, but I feel like for a long time, yeah, it was very much only alpha heroes mm -hmm. and slightly subservient women. Slightly, some of them are excessively subservient. I was trying um, to be generous. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. How many books, by the way, did you end up with? Because I've got like eight and I'm like continuing to grow. So I was like, oh, I wanted to change on my books real quick. And now I'm like adding like two yeah, other books. Some weird groupings of books going on. <laughs> where I like couldn't decide because I was trying to like kind of keep my list varied as opposed to all uh, one kind of thing. So, yeah. I have a lot of historical fiction in my books. So there's that. I tried to limit myself on that, which, yeah. I think then I wound up going too far in the other direction. I have a tendency to go very much into the historical fiction uh, direction because that's almost all that I read now is historical fiction. If it wasn't for Michelle, I wouldn't be able to get my head out of historical fiction books because, because of the blog and all the stuff that I actually end up reviewing is historical fiction, so I'm going to have time so that's why we have Blind Women in Words, so that Michelle could force me to read non-historical fiction-based books. Um, so the next book on my list, without okay. just jumping into it, changing subjects, clean cup, move down. Um, we have <laughs> we have the um, book Wicked, which the musical was based on. I think that constitutes very much so the idea of a modern feminist book. You have a woman who Antonia and I, like we were talking about, like with Catherine the Great, where history, quote unquote, 
actually tries to rewrite her. They take this woman who is, it's very easy to see her as a villain in, um, in the movie. But after watching, after reading Wicked and after watching the, the musical, you see a whole other side to her to the point where I can't even watch Wizard of Oz the same way anymore. I don't know. Have you gone back to try to watch Wizard of Oz since you've watched the musical? Have you read the book too? I think I started reading the book and then got distracted, if I'm being honest. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was a physical book and not a digital one. So I couldn't mm. take it with me places. Gotcha. Which sometimes kills my reading on stuff. <laughs> but, um... You just have to have a big enough purse where you can just stick your book in it. Right. Um, but it will, well, and with Wizard of Oz, it doesn't help that I was kind of burned out on it already from mm, it. That's just the family option for like if grandma's over or something. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. Love the musical though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think with, you know, with the musical, with the book, it's just this, yeah, you have this completely different look at it. You have a woman who was actually trying to do good and everything else acted against her because as one of the songs says, no good deed goes unpunished. I'm so, so sorry not to burst out in song right now. You don't even know. <laughs> I totally know. Anytime somebody points out something that has to do with Hamilton, or like earlier in the episode, you're like, we just want to be in the room. And I'm thinking in my head, room where it happened, room where it happened. I almost started bursting out in the song then, but I waited until now. <laughs> Okay, how about your next two? Okay, my next two, I'm like even half forgetting what I narrowed my list to. Okay, it would not be a reading suggestion. Have your list written down? I, Is it written down at all? It was written down at work and then I forgot it, so I opened tabs instead. <laughs> <Anyway>. <laughs> so, it would not be a reading recommendation list from Antonia if it did not include Terry Pratchett. Um, okay. So yes, I'm including Terry Pratchett. Here, the issue is narrowing it down to a more specific book than just like all of the Discworld series, which is, you know, huge and epic. Um, but I do think he could be relied on to write women well and not in only, you know, one kind of this is woman character type of way. Um, mm -hmm. So to narrow it at all, um, his witches are amazing. And, you know, they're able to be older women and amazing and badass. But also um, he has he also has a young adult um, series within this world of a witch who's just learning, um, which is also excellent. Um, but also, he has an amazing character, Susan, who's the granddaughter of death, and <laughs> is basically everything I want to be in the world. Um, <laughs> yeah, she's just very much a badass and, um, you know, takes no shit from anybody. And I love her very much. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Susan is a qualifier book or two books or are we talking the whole or is it the whole series i'm cheating and calling the whole thing one choice <laughs> okay that works 
I can, I can live with that because okay. I did Parasol Parker as one choice and it's like six books or something like that. Mine's like 30 something, <laughs> but one choice. That's not much. Not much at all. Um, so also because I have recently been reading comics for like, I guess, I mean, over, probably like two years now, but it was a silly thing that I didn't let myself do because it wasn't expected of young ladies or whatever. Um, and you know, a parent never was going to offer to drive me to a comic store or anything. Um, so yes, I have recently been reading comics cause I can, damn it. Um, <laughs> Uh, so once again, cheating and including multiple recommendations under my one book, um, Ms. Marvel and Captain Marvel, the newer runs are amazing. Um, they are. It's so good to hear. Ms. Marvel is now a young Muslim teenager. Um, and just, ah, it's so good. As Yeah, she's, you know, very much the teenager trying to balance her teenage life with superheroing but at the same time that she does come from a very conservative family which you know even if I'm not Muslim you know the conservative family is definitely relatable <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I think so many related I felt conservative family thing yeah um and then over on with Captain Marvel um Carol Danworth who's an awesome lady and who's gonna be in the movies soon but Ooh, I have to admit yeah. I'm annoyed movie wise because they cast you know, 20 something Brie Larson instead of a 30 something early 40s woman who it should be. But I agree, but I'm still excited. <laughs> at least we're getting the movie. It's a step in the right direction. We're going to take one little victory at a time. Right? I'm like, <laughs> what I can get because I'm, you know, dying here, but could have been better, damn it. Um, and I'm cheating, right? and I'm cheating and throwing in, um, in the, actually, oh, I think there's a, there's a newer Kate Bishop run just starting, but, um, in the Matt Fraction Hawkeye run, um, there was a side story of Kate Bishop, who is the female Hawkeye, um, and they are Hawk bros with she and Clint Barton. Um, but yeah, so there's a section of that where she's off in LA kind of being a private eye superhero and generally being fabulous. So <laughs> amazing too. Yeah. And that's a great thing. So I think um, within the comic book world, we do have a lot of really great feminist literature that we don't really talk about because it's seen as a boy club. Last yeah. week I had on Tanya Bjork and she, uh, she and I were talking about her series, which I think you actually might like. It's called Havenhurst. Actually, I think you would definitely like it. Where you have a female protagonist who comes from this abusive family, and she's the one who has a strength, and she, uh, it's not other people saving her, it's her taking her own fate into her own hands. And so we got to talk a lot about that, but you see more of that in the comics, ironically, than you do in other location, other areas of the world for the longest time. I mean, Look at Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman's been around since what the twenties or thirty the thirties, I think it was, was when she got started. It was like late thirties, early forties. She's been around a long time. She's been around almost as she almost as long as Superman. Yeah, forty one. Okay. But still super established character. 
Exactly. And so you have these strong women. Uh, you have what? Batgirl. There's been Supergirl. There's been um, even uh, Catwoman. Uh, her own respects is very feminist. So you've got a lot of really great feminist literature within the comic book world that movies and needs to catch up with and other literature needs to catch up with. So my next two, because of course they're going to be historical fiction, um, the Outlander series. How can one of us not bring up the Outlander series? <laughs> So many of us are Outlander fans here who have come on the show. Myself, Eddie, Antonia, um, Michelle's an Outlander fan. I have to admit, I'm not as big an Outlander fan, I think, as the rest of you. I, have, I haven't read past, I want to say book five. I think I'm on six. And they're just such heavy, thick books, and I just haven't. I'm like, okay, I'm going to get to book six once season five has finished and I need to read that before so that I know what's going to happen in the season before. So I've gotten a bit lazy on it. But I think it's very much that it's very famous in the fact that you have this woman, a modern woman from the 1940s who was a nurse on the front lines and she goes, you know, the fifties start to set in where it becomes a very, it's like that whole backlash to all the progress that was occurring in the 1940s. And, but instead of actually going into the 50s, she goes back into the was it 16th century. It's seven. It's like late 1700s. The Highlands just before the Scotland uh, did their war for attempt for independence from England. And that whole thing, like what Veronica had said in the book where I hope we can bring, you know, you could bring your sensibilities back with you. Claire actually tries in some regards and nearly gets herself killed multiple times for doing it. And I think it's a good story in the fact that it looks at what women actually went through back mm -hmm. then. The actual cases of rape, the actual cases of being a piece of property, not having your choices. And seeing it through the eyes of a modern woman going back. Um, and having to deal with these things as a story progresses forward through time, I think it's a very, very good book in that regards. Did you have thoughts, Antonia? <laughs> I mean, again, I, I <laughs> agree with you. I, do, I don't know why, because by all accounts, it should be something that I became obsessed with. But for some reason, it just, yeah, it didn't click for me as much as it did, I think, for most of you. I can understand that. I can see that. Um, well, the next book that I have on my list moving along down the line is Madam Presidentess. This is, I, you might need to borrow, do I need to bring this with me tomorrow so you can borrow it? Possibly, that or I just need to download it. Download it, go, you can go ahead and download it. Says, oh, that's right, you prefer your ebooks. Okay, it's a strictly functionality reason and it's like <laughs> I read on my phone at work sometimes <laughs> you know I will not turn down a good ebook but I right now I'm going through physical book phase um, I like physical books better but can't read them at work so <laughs> yeah understandable Needs but Madam Presidentess is about the first woman who ever ran for president. 
um, like back when Hillary started, people um, initially started saying she was the first woman to run for president. There was like, no, 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 no. She's not the first woman to actually run for president. There was this other woman, Victoria Woodhull, who did. And if you go to creatingherstory.wordpress.com, yeah, I actually did an interview with the, uh, the author, actually did a guest post for me comparing and contrasting what happened when Victoria ran for president versus uh, today when Hillary was running for president. And it's really interesting to see the compare and contrast and how little things have changed and how this woman was vilified and how much of a different kind of woman that she was in the 1800s. So I, I consider that to be a, definitely a piece of modern feminist uh, literature. Mm -hmm. How about you, Antonia? That sounds what are your next two Um. Okay. So my next two, I know that you didn't like this one as much as I did, but I am including Diviners by Libby. You're going to say that. Go ahead. <laughs> so Tell me, Tell me why it's so wonderful. Partially because I appreciate that its heroine is allowed to be an absolute shit show of a young woman. Um, because I feel like a lot of times when people write strong female characters, they have to be kind of perfect. Um, and just, you know, uber competent and, you know, always know what they're doing. Um, because, you know, they are strong women. But in this case, it's, yeah, it's set in the 20s. Um, this flapper who's trying to find her way in the world. Um, and... Yeah, and she's just, she's a train wreck of a human being. <laughs> um, there's, like, there's the supernatural stuff going on, too. But, yeah, I just, I really love that also it has a lot of different kinds of women in it. Um, so, you know, she does have her quieter friend, and the two of them get to know a Follies showgirl who's very confident. Um <laughs> And yeah, I just, I like that each character is allowed to be very different, um, but very fully realized and very imperfect. <laughs> <laughs> I love the imperfect characters. Those are, those are really great. And your next, um, your next one? My next pick is kind of I feel like in some ways it was like the parasol protectorate series to me in that it follows you know one woman through the series as opposed to you know the next book is about the side character kind of thing um of the Lady Julia Gray series um by Deanna Rayburn okay um so the first one is silent in the grave um but yes Victorian lady who is solving crime and generally being awesome. That's <laughs> <laughs> like the book I just reviewed for Historical Novel Society. Um, it was the no. It was called No Pity for the Dead, and what I basically said of the book it was basically it's um, it's Sherlock without all the sexism. Is that what uh, Julia Gray is about? Is, is it like that? Is it like Sherlock but without the sexism? I yes. You know what? I think it kind of is. <laughs> 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 but yes i had a lot of fun with that series um it, it hadn't made my five list but only because i was trying to curb my desire to put all historical fiction <laughs> which i think is okay 
knew it because I mean when it comes to historical fiction and looking at, really looking at that under the scope of feminist literature um, it's it's good because we learn lessons from history we well, actually I think that's where a lot of women are quote-unquote allowed to write also. Mm -hmm. um, a publisher will, you know, buy that manuscript um, because we're ladies and should only write romance. But also looking at some of the historical fiction that's coming out, um, like actually we'll jump ahead to one of mine that's on the list and it's Marlene, um, the story of Marlene Dietrich. Uh, and it's actually written by, have you, have you read that one yet? No, I haven't. It's, uh, seriously, I'm like include, increasing my list right now. You totally need to. Um, it's actually <laughs> written by a guy, C.W. Gorder. And what's the reason why I bring it up for historical fiction and why it's so great for, as a piece of um, feminist literature is because she was not your stereotypical woman of the 1930s and 40s. She was bisexual. She she had a number of different lovers, um, so it was she was very much a modern woman, and she was a strong woman, and she was dedicated to helping the troops when it came during World War II, and actually saving people from Germany who would otherwise be killed by the Germans. And so much is focused on saving the Jews and the Holocaust, which rightfully so, that was an atrocity. But the Nazis weren't just going after the Jews. They were going after the les the homosexual community, yeah, uh, the transgender people. When you look at I never truly realized how much Berlin was like Las Vegas. Steroids in a lot of ways. It was like <laughs> West Hollywood meets Las Vegas, really, is what it comes down to. It was like a mashup of those two cities together. Um, all the weirdness, all the exoticness, all the drunken debauchery, just put the two of them together, and that's that's what Berlin was in the 20s and 30s. And all of that went away when the Nazis came in. And she actually helped save some of those people from that. And she's an unsung hero for that. And I think it's a lesson that women need to to learn, and I think that she is somebody that uh, women within the LGBTQ community can look up to as a role model. Mm -hmm. and yeah, so many women are pretty much only remembered for being pretty faces, and all of the amazing stuff they did gets kind of swept under the rug. Mm -hmm. And that's why historical fiction is important for uh, feminist literature, looking at Absolutely. feminism. Yeah, yeah. Again, don't get me wrong. Like I totally love and respect historical literature. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, because but for for um, those of you who don't know, I like to call her my Antonia's my editor because she reads a lot of my stuff and she really helps me edit and get some of, and getting a need to prepared uh, to pitch out to people. And she's going to be getting uh, once she finishes up Anita the four chapters that she hit. Only four chapters left, girl. Only four chapters left. And then I will let you read my new stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, again, don't get me wrong. I think that it's uh, important and uh, under... Why am I not thinking of the word? I'm going to... Um, not underutilized, but just it's a, it's not a respect enough genre as it deserves. Um, but I also think that 
that yeah that people are more willing to take a chance on a woman writing that as opposed to like a hard crime novel perhaps um mm -hmm. so in that respect it doesn't shock me that we see more feminist literature kind of coming out of that um pocket well a lot of the, uh, from this point on all of my um books are pretty much going to be historical fiction <laughs> good because i like it <laughs> <laughs> This is my second book. My next book, going back up onto my list from the one that I skipped over, was Dido's Crown, which we'll actually be reading in February. Because when I have a tendency to pick books, they have a tendency to be historical fiction. Dido's Crown, I love it. Um, it's by Julie K. Rose, and she's actually going to be at my literary festival in March. I say my literary festival. It's not completely mine. It's in the city of Santa Ana. But she's going to be one of the featured authors there. Um, but it's set in World War II, and it's like Casablanca meets Indiana Jones. I'm really so is. Sustainable, <laughs> <laughs> sustainable. I'm buying it. <laughs> with, well, with um, Dado's Crown, it's um, you know you have this woman who you're not so sure about when it starts. She ha you don't know what her motives are, and. And it's not just about this one woman, it's this cast of characters. She ends up going on this wild whirlwind ride through, um, I want to say it's uh, Tanzia. Uh, it's northern Africa for sure. And and in France. And she's with um, three other guys, one who just ha so happens to be gay. She's running for her life from, her, from the guy that she's married to, her quote-unquote husband. Um, and I say the term husband in the very loosest sense of the terms because they have an agreement with each other. Um, a very modern agreement, if you know what I mean. And <laughs> but she's strong, she's complicated, and she is flawed like hell. Um, and so you see this very brave, upfront woman that you don't typically see in when you see these these sagas of World War II and World War One. It's the woman being the backup to the mm -hmm. guy as opposed to the guy who's actually, or the woman who's actually the one who's in the forefront and the guys in the backup yeah. to her. And they're the ones who are wistful and with the history and whatnot. So th that's my idea of it. And I won't give too much away because we're reading it in February. Yay. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what's next on your list, Antonia? That's That's basically it for my planned list. Um, okay. Have you I, a few more? Sure, I could come up with more ideas, but now I feel very on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll go on to my next two ideas, and I'll give you a couple more. Uh, so it'll give you some more time to think of a few others as okay. we before we close out for the night. Um, my next one on my list is "I Shall Be Near to You" by Erin Lindsay McCabe, which we've had on the show previously. She was our first author guest. Uh, back when we were still trying to figure out how this whole podcast thing works. <laughs> um, with Erin's book, it's a story of how a woman dresses up and masquerades as a guy in order to go into war to be with her husband because she wasn't going to get left behind. And it wasn't until Erin's book that I knew that there were all these women who would dress up and go to war to be in fight alongside their husbands and their brothers and their fathers. And it, you know, uncover this whole section of feminism that I didn't know existed during the mid 1800s during the civil war. 
So I, you know, it's definitely a really strong piece of feminist literature, especially given the fact, you know, women in combat, that sort of thing. Yeah. And then my last book is Z, a novel of Zelda Fitzgerald, which Michelle and I got confirmation today that the author, Therese, is going to be on the show with us in April. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I know, Michelle's probably listening and going, God, I wanted to be the one to make the announcement. <laughs> um, I forget what the other book is, and, and we'll talk about it in detail. But, like, I've read Z, and Michelle read this other one, and it's about they both are about the um the time of the roaring 1920s and with Zelda and, and the Fitzgeralds. We each read, you know, a different book on the topic. We decided a long time ago that we wanted to try something where I read one book and Michelle read the other book. Mm -hmm. And then we compare and contrast these stories since they were so similar. So we're gonna do that for the month of April and we're gonna have both authors on. That's so fun. <laughs> We're going to have a roaring 20s party when they're on to discuss uh, books. Um, but Zelda is a, she's definitely become a modern feminist icon mm -hmm. of the way she was treated and the way she's been treated by history and the way she's been treated by um, her own husband and the way that. Um, Ernest Hemingway treated her too. She was just another woman. She was, <coughs> excuse me, she was the one that, you know, because she went on from thing to thing that they couldn't, you know, that, that was seen as a bad thing because she couldn't find her own voice. She wasn't really allowed to find her own voice. Mm -hmm. And she had to live in Scott's uh, shadow for so much of his life. And I think it, it, there are a lot of times in the book that I got really, really frustrated. I love Fitzgerald's work and I loved Ernest Hemingway, but it was there were multiple times where I just wanted to reach through the book and just punch Hemingway in the face. And which I'm sure that he would have loved. He would have loved the whole boxing match thing because he was such a chauvinist. Um, but I can't, I can't even bring myself to read books about him anymore. I'm so just like, oh, I, I'm so angry with you. Um, I, I just, I feel like they're. There's so many cool ladies I could read about instead. <laughs> you mean instead of Zelda? No, instead of Hemingway. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was going to say, wait a minute, Zelda was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, it's just, I used to really love his literature. I used to love his short stories. I, think, I still think he's one of the best short story writers that there are out there. Mm -hmm. um, but I can't appreciate him but like I do like I do like I did then because after I've seen more of his his story it's well, that whole concept of separating the artist from the art well and I feel like my issue is also once I know more about the artist then I think certain things in their art leap out more to me than they might have mm -hmm. um, and I'm like oh dear I know where that's coming from was it um, oh, farewell to arms when he was that's the one about him when he was in World War One, right? I think so, pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. After I learned more about him and the way he wrote that ending, I was like, Yeah, yeah, I don't as much as I did before. Yeah, yeah, I want mm -hmm. in general, I'm pretty bad at separating artists from their art. Um, 
I just, just feel like certain, certain views are going to color your work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a whole other topic for a different day. Because yeah. we could talk about that for another hour or two. <laughs> we've, been, we've gone over our hour. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. It's <laughs> a wonderful time talking. So thank you all. Uh, thank you, Antonia, for being a wonderful co-host. Very happy to. Thank you for yes. having me. Then you're welcome back here anytime. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, next week, uh, we're actually going to have Jennifer Lamb discussing uh, Zarina's legacy. And everybody, be sure to actually finish the book by next week because there will be spoilers if you have not finished the book. So I'll finish the book by next week. And with that, have a wonderful night, everyone, and we'll see you in a week. Bye.